Every catheter was handmade by the angiographer. He would take the catheter, hold it over a flame and pull it and get a nice tapered tip at one end. We would take those catheters and put them in boiling water and form the shape we wanted. And that's how bizarre it was at the time. And I remember the first case that was referred to us. It was a young patient who was uh, riding on a motorcycle. He crashed, he, he ruptured his pelvis. He was bleeding out. We didn't have any material to embolize with. So I took his blood and um, kept stirring it until it coagulated on itself. And then I injected clots into the artery that was bleeding. It stopped and we became a hero at MGH. And then the whole field just exploded. Welcome to the Sound of IR podcast, an SIR RFS initiative. I'm Subhash Goody. And I'm Sunny Murthy. We're your producers for this podcast. We hope to deliver impactful insight into the field with the goal of inspiring the next generation of interventional radiologists. I'm your host, Eric Cyphers, third year med student and project lead for the Legend series. We're excited to share this interview series with you where we will be hearing from some of the founders of IR about their experiences in the earliest days of our specialty and their advice for students. For this episode, we wanted to share the interview where I had the honor to talk with Dr. Stan Baum at his home in Philadelphia. Dr. Baum was one of the first interventional radiologists in the United States, chair of the University of Pennsylvania's radiology department from 1975 to 1996, and a founder of the Society of Interventional Radiology. Dr. Baum passed away last week at age 92, and this interview was one of his last gifts to the IR community. After discussing with those who knew him well, we wanted to honor his legacy and share it with the world. So I'd like to ask first, how did you decide to pursue radiology and what exciting things were going on in the field when you were a student and early trainee? The reason I really I picked radiology was a, uh, was a funny one. During medical school uh, over the summer, I got a job where I was uh, actually working as an x-ray technician uh, and I did this for three years. So I felt I knew something about the specialty. And after my internship, which was at Kings County Hospital in New York, I decided that I liked radiology and I ought to go into it. I came to Penn, did my radiology residency, diagnostic radiology. At that time, it was also therapeutic radiology. And I was all finished with the, or just about finished, when I decided I did not like radiology at all. <laughs> uh, I didn't like the idea of being isolated from patients. I didn't like the idea of only looking at films and relating to, uh, to diseases. I wanted to work much more with my hands. About this time, there were some interesting papers that were being uh, presented, mostly in Sweden, in cardiovascular angiography. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read those and I was fascinated by it because he was a field that uh, was like radiology, was image-guided but there was much more patient uh, uh, interaction. I, I don't know if you appreciate how this all started in Sweden. I really don't know. Do you know who Seldinger was? Yes. Okay, so Seldinger was a, uh, a Swedish radiologist 
was actually in private practice. He wasn't even uh, at a university. And he came upon this very innovative way of replacing a needle with a catheter in a blood vessel. And it seemed like a simple thing. But prior to that, there was really no way to get a, uh, a catheter in except doing a cut down on, on the artery, uh -huh. which people weren't doing. So if you wanted to visualize, let's say, the abdominal aorta, the only way you could do that is do a translumbar aortogram. You'd have to put a needle in the back, go into the aorta, and inject contrast material. But using the Seldinger technique, you could approach the aorta from the groin. So you could puncture the femoral artery, you replace the needle with a guide wire, then you put a catheter over the guide wire. The catheter is bigger than the original needle stick, so there's no bleeding. And you can manipulate that catheter under uh, image guidance anywhere you want in the body. And as you know, the the inside of blood vessels have no sensory uh, mm -hmm. fiber, so that patients don't even know you, you, what you're doing. So I found that fascinating, and I uh, there was a, um, a chief of diagnostic radiology at Stanford named Herb Abrams, and Dr. Abrams had uh, also seen this work in Sweden, and he spent a year at the University of Lund learning this technique. Mm -hmm. And he came back and he established a fellowship. I was his first fellow. So I went there in 1961, I guess. And I spent about a year and a half with him. Then I stayed on the faculty for a little while. And I loved it. Uh, it was a perfect marriage between radiology and being involved with patients and doing studies. Uh, so that's how I got involved in, in the whole field. Next question. So uh, the early 60s saw the advent of selective arteriography to visualize the arterial supply to the GI tract. And it was your work in 1963 with Dr. Nussbaum that used this technique to identify the site of GI bleeding. Can you describe how you came up with that idea and what did it mean for the management of GI bleeding? When I was a resident, the hospital I was in specialized in the gastrointestinal tract. There was a very world-famous gastroenterologist there named uh, Henry Bacchus. Uh, he wrote the classic books on GI. And through him, I also then developed an interest in the gastrointestinal tract. In the late 70s, late 78, 79, when I was a resident, uh, you had to imagine if a patient came in with massive GI bleeding, whether it be upper or lower GI bleeding, uh, you had no way of knowing where that bleeding was coming from. The flexible endoscope had not been invented. You could put down a rigid scope from the, uh, from the esophagus, but you could manipulate it, so all you could really see is the fundus of the stomach. So not very far. No. Yeah. So you could see the top of the stomach, that's all. Coloscope was obviously not uh, around, so you put a proctoscope in and you could see the rectum. But other than that, you had no idea. Uh, where the bleeding was coming from. And even if it was coming from the upper stomach or the rectal sigmoid, there was so much blood there, you couldn't determine where it actually started from. As a result, the, the morbidity of operating on a patient with massive GI bleeding was almost 50%. And the surgeon would go in, find the GI tract completely filled with blood, having no idea where it is, and either do a blind gastrectomy, hoping he gets the ulcer if that's what it's due to, or doing a blind colectomy, basically taking out the entire colon. And if you do this on an unprepared bowel, the mortality is very, very high. Wow. So mortality actually approached 50%. Because of this problem, 
Maureen Nussbaum, who was also a resident uh, in surgery at the time, he and I said, you know, it would be great if we could, at the operating room table, determine where the bleeding was. So both of you were residents at this time? Yes. Wow. So I was a resident, he was a resident. We didn't even think of angiography at the time. We thought, well, maybe if we do a laparotomy on, let's say, uh, an animal that had a artificially created GI bleed, and if we put an isotope, say, in the superior mesenteric artery, maybe that isotope would spill out with the blood and we could determine where it was. It never worked. It was very complicated. It was, uh, you had so much radioactivity in the abdomen, you could never determine where it was. So we kind of forgot about that. When I came back from Stanford, I had learned how to do selective supramesenteric angiography and left gastric angiography and colic angiography. For, for diagnostic purposes. For diagnostic purposes, correct. And then it occurred to me that, you know, if we're using it, if I can get into the supramesenteric artery, uh, not opening up the patient, and the patient is bleeding, and if I injected the contrast material, perhaps I could see that contrast material where it exits from the, uh, from the artery. We did a series of animals where we created, actually Musbaum created, a bleeding point in the small intestines. Then we put a, uh, a very fine catheter, a number 10 polyethylene catheter, into a branch of the supramesenteric artery and fed that catheter into the GI tract. Then we did a supramesenteric arteriogram um, as we would normally do it. And sure enough, the contrast material leaked out through the catheter mm. into the GI tract. We were able to titrate the amount of bleeding by simply changing the diameter of the catheter we used. And we, we determined that um, by using this technique, we could actually detect a bleeding site of a half a cc per minute, which was well within what patients who have massive bleeding, much more than that. So we did a series of animals. We consistently showed that this was possible. In the late 70s, it was much more easy to take techniques and move them from the laboratory into the clinic. You didn't need the kind of approval you would need today. And we had shown these studies to some of the gastroenterologists in the hospital. And sure enough, a patient appeared with massive GI bleeding. And I got a call one evening and saying, remember those studies you showed me on the animals? You think you could do a supermesenteric arteriogram on this patient? And we did it, and sure enough, you could see exactly where the bleeding was. The surgeon operated, despite the fact that the entire GI tract was filled with blood. He knew exactly where the, where the culprit was, and he did a very selective uh, partial colectomy. Well, that was the beginning. And once we showed that, then we were flooded with cases of GI bleeds. And what was the outcome for that very first patient? Well, we had a lot of patients. We showed patients with, uh, with bleeding from... Uh, colonic diverticula, we show the patients bleeding from ulcers, we show patients bleeding from tumors, and it became a very popular technique. And we both published this in surgical journals and GI journals. What's interesting is that the radiologists were less interested in this technique. Hmm. And the reason is that most radiologists went into radiology not to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning <laughs> to do an emergency arteriogram. And if you began doing these techniques, you had to be available, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Because you know, patients come in with bleeding, not on, on, a, on a special timetable. They come in when they want to, you know, when they bleed. So we had less resistance. I had less resistance in publishing articles in GI hmm. uh, journals. 
and surgical journals than the radiology journals. So radiologists didn't want the new call schedule. <laughs> no, they, they weren't very anxious to see this uh, become a, a routine procedure. Plus, very few of them were really skilled in, mm. in percutaneous angiography at the time. You had to have that fellowship. Yeah. yeah. Right. So one of the defining events for the beginning of interventional radiology was when you developed a therapeutic application for the right. angiographic catheter. Can you tell us about that and what sort of impact did you think this new therapeutic application might have? In Europe, gastroenterologists had been using surgical vasopressin for the treatment of variceal bleeding and they would give it intravenously. And the rationale was that the vasopressin caused vasoconstriction of the blood vessels and would decrease the bleeding. And I read that work and I thought, that's interesting. And what if we were to use a vasoconstrictor mm. and put that vasoconstrictor through the catheter after we identified where it's bleeding from? So we went back to the laboratory and we did more studies. And lo and behold, um, vasopressin ends up being the one of the few, I think the only one that we were able to identify that did not have tachyphylaxis. If you, if you use epinephrine, it initially worked, but you kept having to increase the dose of epinephrine. But tachyphylaxis did not exist with vasopressin, so you could stay at the same dose. And we determined that uh, the animals, if we kept it at a dose of about 0.2 units per, uh, per cc per minute, the bleeding stopped. Once again, uh, it was much easier to go from the laboratory to the clinic mm -hmm. in the late 50s. Less oversight. Right. And sure enough, we had a patient who came in with a massive ascending colon diverticulum. We identified it and we spoke to the gastroenterologist and said, you know, we've been able to control these in dogs. So uh, we got informed consent, but uh, again, it was quite a different uh, era. And sure enough, we were able to stop the bleeding. We kept the infusion going for um, about 24 hours until that diverticulum actually healed. The artery healed in it. We took the catheter out. The patient never bled again. So this was a, uh, you know, Charlie Dotter about this time was using a transluminal angioplasty to increase blood flow. Mm -hmm. And now with this technique, we had a way we could actually decrease blood flow. So we began doing these studies again, and once again, the radiologists weren't particularly interested because not only would they have to come in the middle of the night, but they have to put the catheters in. They would have to monitor those catheters. The patient goes back to the floor, you have to make rounds. And many radiologists didn't go into radiology to do that. So um, most of my presentations early on were at the GI societies and surgeons. Wow. And because of that, the surgeons would go back to their institutions and say, hey, you know, we heard this, this, these studies at the University of Pennsylvania, we were actually able to control bleeding by infusing this vasoconstrictor. And they, they kind of pressed their radiology department to get someone who's skilled in doing this. So, so there's a little bit more interest now in, uh, in angiography. And it does take a certain skill because the major sources of the of blood supply to the uh, GI tract the left gastric artery, which can be difficult to catheterize, supreme mesenteric, which is easy, but the inferior mesenteric is also quite difficult. So you, you, need, you needed some skill in being able to put a catheter in that. 
while the patient is massively bleeding and people are pumping in blood and everything else. Speaking of these arteries which are difficult to catheterize, uh, how are you initially creating these catheters and other tools before they became commercially available? Well, that's an interesting question. At Stanford, where we did percutaneous angiography, commercially available catheters were not available. You could not buy a catheter to do this because no one had done this. But the Swedes had developed radio-opaque catheters for other uses, but all they were were catheters on a reel, on a roll, and they came color-coded. You had a red catheter, which is the smallest. You had a green catheter, and then you had a yellow catheter, which was like a hose. <laughs> what size were these? Oh, they were, they were large. They, they uh, way over 20 feet. They were big catheters. <laughs> but the smaller ones were, were fine. But, but then we had to make those catheters. So every catheter was handmade by the angiographer. You would take the catheter, hold it over a flame and pull it and get a nice taper tip at one end. Then you would hold it over the flame again and flange the other end. Wow. And, and that would be the, the part that would have the uh, connector on it. And then you would put it in some sterile solution overnight. And if you were very sophisticated, your institution had gas sterilization, so you could, you could, you could sterilize it. But remember, these catheters were straight catheters. And what you really wanted was a curved catheter. Because, you know, if you want to get into renal artery, you need a right angle from the, uh, from the aorta. And if you want to get into the supramesenteric artery, you needed something that went almost back on itself. Mm. So we would take those catheters and put them in boiling water and form the shape we wanted. And that's how bizarre it was at the time. Uh, if you wanted to do a renal arteriogram on someone, the night before you would measure where you think the renal arteries are. You measure that to the groin. That would be the length of the catheter you would, you would pick. You would put a shape on the catheter depending when you do a right or left selective renal arteriogram. Then we gave it sterilized, and then the following morning you take it out, and then to the catheter you would use. And God forbid you drop that catheter, that's the end of the procedure. But even after you got the catheter in the artery you wanted, you have to inject contrast material in order to take a series of films. Mm -hmm. So you would inject, let's say, 20 cc's of contrast material over a period of two or three seconds. You can't do that with a normal syringe. You need mm -hmm. an injector. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have injectors. So <laughs> I edited a book called uh, um, Abrams Angiography. I don't know if you saw it. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you go to the beginning of that book, you'll see uh, a series of, uh, of pictures of the, of the injectors we used at the time. Some of them were very bizarre. <laughs> it was like an inverted syringe, and yet you had a plunger, and you would just lean on the plunger, and sometimes the syringe would break. Or, until angiography became a, uh, an accepted technique, the manufacturers weren't going to be doing anything in manufacturing it. That's fascinating to hear. You know, we have we take it for granted today. All these tools available at our fingertips, and some of them are cheap and replaceable. That's no, amazing. It, it, was, it was very, very primitive, but it worked. And uh, everyone had their own techniques in making catheters. I, I remember um, there was a, a Swedish uh, angiographer named Sven Pauline, and Sven had an idea of how to do coronary arteriograms at the time. Not selective, but he, he took a catheter, he put it in a mold where he created a series of circles, and it became like a coil. And he then put the holes 
on the underside of the coils. And he would put that catheter in, un unwound, and it would be straight. And after he got it into the aorta, he would place it right above the uh, supraortic uh, uh, valve, aortic valve. And like an umbrella, it would force contrast material going into the coronary arteries. Were they well visualized with that? Well, remember, no one had ever visualized coronary oh. arteries. Uh -huh. uh, so he was successful in doing it, but you could only see the coronary arteries in its proximal, less than a third. I mean, then it would disappear. You mentioned rounding on the patients you'd treat. Uh, what, was the, what was the involvement in your clinical management with these patients? You have to realize that um, most hospitals at the time did not have admitting privileges for radiologists. Radiologists are physicians, but radiologists could not admit a patient. As a result, radiologists were not encouraged even to write notes on a patient's chart. If you wrote a note, you had to have it co-signed by a real physician. Okay? <laughs> well, this became a problem because you know, if a clinician sends you a patient for a chest x-ray, that's fine. It goes down and do a chest x-ray or even a barium study. But if they refer a patient for an arteriogram, we really have to, we have to see that patient beforehand. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure the femoral pulses are good. We have to make sure the patient has good renal function because the contrast arterial can be toxic. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure the patient is well hydrated. We have to make sure the patient doesn't eat before it comes down. So we had to make, pre, we had to make rounds before we saw patients. So if we had five patients on Tuesday, Monday night, we had to see those five patients. Then after you did the patient, you didn't really want the clinicians to be involved in the follow-up. You mean, if you're a real physician, you follow up your own patient. So you had to make rounds. And if you had a busy practice, uh, rounds could actually take quite a while between seeing preoperative patients and post-procedure patients. And then, of course, you want to make sure that the patient you did, where you put a catheter in the femoral artery, is not blocked, Maybe, mm -hmm. uh, that the patient has a good pulse. So you had to make rounds at night. When we began infusing patients to stop the GI bleeding, then rounds became even more important because there you're putting in a um, vasoconstricting agent like vasopressin, which has other effects. Uh, it's an anti-diuretic. Uh, so the patient electrolytes are all screwed up, but you had to make sure the electrolytes are okay. You have to make sure the EKG is okay. There's no vasoconstriction of the coronary arteries by the, um, by the contrast, et cetera, et cetera. You have to make sure that the catheter that's in the femoral artery at the time is not blocking it and has good peripheral pulses. So all of these now suddenly took the radiologist out of the reading room and brought the, patient, brought, brought the radiologist up into the floor and became a real physician. What was it like at this exciting time when the applications of... Uh, therapeutic angiography were rapidly growing. It was very exciting. Personally, I, uh, I started this work in Philadelphia, and um, at the time, there were about two or three other people in the city that were getting interested in this. And there was one at Jefferson, uh, Sid Wallace was, was involved, Stan Cope was at Einstein, Ronnie Solon was at Temple, and we formed the Philadelphia Angio Club. And the purpose of this club was to share our experience. So we would meet every, uh, every month. We used to meet at Penn. And I would show the cases that I had done. They would show the cases they did. We would discuss them. Uh, we, would, we would talk frankly about complications, talk about uh, innovations, new things we did. And 
it became very important. And this, slowly this club began to grow because more and more people were getting involved. The Philadelphia Angel Club was probably the first one. And then similar um, clubs grew up in Boston. Um, the Hopkins group used to come up to Philadelphia. So it was the Eastern Angio Club, which was the Philadelphia Club, and there was the New England one, which was the Boston Club. Then in California, they had the, um, the Western Angio uh, Club, and that's how we were able to communicate with each other. How did these Angio Clubs eventually grow into what we now know as the Society of Interventional Radiology? Uh, well, that's what we're getting to, yes. Um, we had these individual clubs, and sometimes we would, we would have joint meetings. So the New England one would come down to Philadelphia, we'd go up there, and so one club became two clubs, and maybe three clubs, Midwestern Angio Society. By this time, I had moved to Mass General. It was 1971. 7071, and uh, the whole field has began to become very, very popular, and more and more people doing these studies, mainly pressured by their clinicians, because we not only were able to do um, GI bleeding, but if patients had a tumor, we could we could uh, embolize the tumor. Patient had a pelvic fracture. Pelvic fractures were interesting because if you have a a pelvic fracture and you bleed from it. The treatment at, uh, um, at the time was to do nothing, because if you open up the abdomen, you have to hope that the that the bleeding is a venous bleed, and if you leave the abdomen alone, it would tampen on on itself, so the bleeding would stop. But occasionally, the bleeding was an arterial bleed, and it wasn't tamponading. And these these patients would just bleed out. If you open them up, you could never find where the bleed was. You had to cross clamp the aorta. I mean. And I remember the first case that was referred to us. It was a young patient who was, uh, never forget it, he was actually on, on his honeymoon with, his, with his, his new bride, riding on a motorcycle. He crashed, he, he ruptured his pelvis, and he was bleeding like stink. He was, he was bleeding out. And they said, we don't know where he's bleeding from. He's not tamponading. So we did an arteriogram, and sure enough, we saw where the bleeding was. We didn't have any material to embolize with. So I took his blood and um, kept stirring it until it coagulated on itself. And then I injected clots into the artery that was bleeding. That's and sure fascinating. Enough, it stopped and we became a hero at MGH. And then the whole field just exploded. Do you have any advice for students and trainees who want to become great clinical interventional radiologists for the future? I, I always say that... Um, it really doesn't matter where you train in many of these specialties because uh, you learn most of the stuff after you get out of training anyway. Uh, I don't think that's the case in interventional. I think you want, a, you want a formal program where you actually learn how to do all of these procedures. And nowadays, the expertise you need is really more uh, akin to what a surgical fellow does, right. a, a vascular fellow does. Although there are many procedures that are not a vascular interventional radiology. But I think it's important you find a place that has a formal training program, not simply an apprenticeship kind of thing. I think a, a, um, a well-trained interventional radiologist should be on a vascular service for a while in surgery and, and understand what the surgeon confronts when he's in the operating room. Should be familiar with many surgical procedures should be familiar with non-invasive procedures, 
uh, Doppler ultrasound and measuring uh, blood flow, which is generally run by a uh, by the surgical labs. Mm -hmm. So that you have rotations through that as well, uh, and also should have rotations through through MR because MR MR angiography has become a, a big mm -hmm. player in, in the whole field now, as a CT angiography. So I think you need a place that will adequately train you in all of these areas of, of interventional radiology. It's not simply training that can take place solely within an interventional radiology mm -hmm. section of a radiology department. You, you have to rotate through other parts of the... And uh, lastly, in light of the problem-solving and spirit of innovation you championed across your career, what advice do you have for the students and trainees of today as we prepare to face the challenges of IR's future? You hear a lot about um, competition between vascular surgeons and interventional radiologists. And the whole thing is that that's a big fallacy. I think wherever you are, the person who could do the procedure the best should be the person who does the procedure. You don't own a procedure because you're a radiologist and, and, and you can turn on an image intensifier. You have to be better than the other people because you have more experience. Mm -hmm. And my, my advice was never get into turf battles because you'll never win them because you, you will not control the patient flow. It's the clinicians who control the patient flow, the vascular surgeons and the internists. And your practice will grow if the internists and the surgeons appreciate that you do work better than anybody else in the institution. Okay, Dr. Baum, thank you so much for participating in this interview. It's really been an honor.